everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with another uh, episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast. It's officially Monday, right after Thanksgiving. So uh, we hope everybody had a nice holiday. We're able to get a little relaxation in. And if you're listening to this some other time, always find some time to relax. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Perception Predict, gong.io, lead411, vidyard, and find them. And it's going to be interesting because our guest, I think, has probably some opinions on these different tools as well. Uh, so we'll definitely get his opinion. And without any further ado, our special guest is the one and only, the most talented, most handsome man, the most dangerous and handsome man in sales and sales leadership, uh, Mario Martinez Jr. from Vengresso. So Mario, welcome to the show. Bro, I, I, I'm going to use that introduction from here on forward as the voice of God. Please welcome to the stage the Absolutely. most handsome, the most. <laughs> feel free, feel free. Hey, before we before we jump into like some details of stuff, definitely give people the the context of Vingresso. Like, what is it that you guys do? We want people to understand where your answers are coming from and sort of how you see things. And you know, by all means, you can you know tell us how you became a, a sales degenerate like the rest of us. So. I love it. Uh, thanks, uh, Richard. Appreciate it, bro. Um, so Vingresso, uh, we are a modern sales training company. We focus squarely um, on digital sales prospecting. Um, so that's our niche. So if you look at all the 200 plus training companies that are out there and individual consultants and everybody in between, most people target from hello to close, uh, you know, training folks, the skill development on hello to close, where we are pretty much pre-hello. So 70% of all of our training is getting you more hellos. And from the moment that someone says hello, all that right there from hello to close, that's another training program. So we're not there. So what do you mean though by digital? Like, like I get it, like it's 2021, we should say it, but it's still a buzzword. Like how, yeah. give some more context if you don't mind. Yeah, so our main focus is around social media and uh, around video. So the use of uh, asynchronous video communication uh, for prospecting and creating more conversations. Okay, stop right there, stop. Asynchronous video communication. I'm gonna, I'm gonna push you hard on these buzzwords. All right. What, asynchronous video communication. So right now we're synchronous, right? You and I and Scott, we're talking synchronous video communication. That's two way. I can see you. You can see me. You can see my body movements. You can see all that happening real time. Asynchronous is I create a video and I send it to you utilizing a video sales acceleration tool like, before you say which one, like a OneMob or a Hippo video or a Vidyard. Uh, any of those types of solutions that you've got um, that you mentioned earlier. I think you said Vidyard, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So that, that's what we call asynchronous video communication. And, and that's part of the digital component. Uh, if you look at also what else is included in digital, you, you would include text messaging. Now, technically speaking, email is included as a digital component as well. However, with a big but, um, that's what I would lop into. While it is digital, yes, affirmative, it is actually a traditional selling tool that we've always, always used, just like the phone and um, just like you know face-to-face -face meetings. So, so with that in mind, we don't focus in on, on phone prospecting. That's not us. We don't touch it. That's not our expertise. Um, certainly uh, having opinions and thoughts about that, but we don't really go in that particular area. And we will be launching a selling with email solution actually in 2021 and our selling with text messaging solution as well. And our slant is focus clearly on the seller. We're not a marketing organization for, I'm mean, sorry, we're not a sales organization to marketers. Uh, whereas marketing has the quote, digital marketing. We are all around digital sales and digital selling. So it's really that one-to-one -one communication between a rep and a buyer. Cool. Well, thank you. So, and so when did you start in sales? Like, were you 
like the kid, like let's go all the way back to young Mario, hmm. right? So, so all the way back to young Mario, uh, if you truly start me out uh, as to where I got my big break at, it was actually um, when I was in retail. So I was applying to go to UC Berkeley, Cal, and I had to fund my own way, unfortunately, through um, college. So to do that, I was working at a, um, I needed to host a job, excuse me, I needed to do that, I needed to be able to have a job. So I was working at a, a spot, you may remember, Richard, uh, Scott, I don't know if you, if you remember, but Ritz Camera Centers is where we used to take our 35 millimeter film and we'd drop it off and they'd go and print, you know, give you those nice little four by sixes. So uh, today those are gone, they're, they're dead. Um, but uh, I was working there as a photo finisher. And uh, there was a store in Berkeley, right at the front of UC Berkeley. And I, I, I put in a transfer to uh, transfer there as a photo finisher. And Hunter Anderson was the guy's name. He had a really interesting toupee. You could always see the bobby pins behind his toupee. Uh, he came in and said he wouldn't approve the transfer. And, and I, I was devastated. Like, as soon as he said it, I just thought my world is just going to collapse. Um, and, he, and I said, why? And he said, because you're not qualified. You're overqualified um, as a photo finisher. And I was like, what? this is not making any sense. And he goes, but I will approve you uh, being transferred as a salesperson. What I didn't know was that I actually was in the top three as a part-time photo finisher. I was in the top three for almost an entire year as one of the top three sellers in the region. So you didn't say it again. You didn't know that there was nobody, there was no transparency around that or conversations about it at no, all. Because I was a photo finisher and I wasn't making commissions. So oh. they, they were basically, they were just, they were watching, like, what is this guy doing? And finally, when I put the transfer in, he looked at the information, the data, the background, and he was like, what happened? So he came in and he said to me, uh, I'll transfer you as a salesperson, but not as a photo finisher. And I was like, sales, what are you talking about? Sales? Like what? And he goes, look at this data. And he showed me the data. And I was like, wow. And then he took me through a, what are you doing? And I, I was basically an unconscious competent. I had no idea what I was doing. And then after we, we, I showed him exactly what I was doing, I realized, um, or he said something to me that now I use, and I used it in the, in the movie, The Story of Sales at, with Salesforce that I was in. And that was sales is the art of helping. And uh, that's how I figured out that, okay, I think I've got a place in sales. So technically speaking, my corporate career, corporate, not retail, 23 years in sales. Uh, and I started out as a soft, at a software company um, doing then called telemarketing, now called SDR, BDR work. And I was, there was four folks that were hired. Um, and I was the only part-time out of the four folks doing telemarketing. And within six months, I was promoted into a full-time junior account executive role. Because for every 10 leads that I turned over to the sales team, four of them turned into opportunities. In comparison to the other ones was one, a one for 10. Now, I want to go back, I want to go back for a second when... Um... Your, your first boss here said, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter said, what are you doing? And, and the reason I want to dive into this a little bit is it's so hard sometimes for people to articulate what has come natural to them and get it, get it out of your head and onto paper, so to speak. So what was that process like for you doing it, you know, presumably that very first time, like trying to articulate what you do so Hunter could you know, try to replicate it, uh, presumably, and, and teach some other people. So, uh, in fact, um, one of the things that I, I was, or the thing that I was doing, he started using it as now the new training program for, for new um, retail associates. And, and so, as a photo finisher, our job was to look at every picture. 
make sure that it wasn't too dark, it wasn't too light, it had the right magenta, cyan. I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> but nonetheless, we had to look at each picture. And if anything was wrong, we'd go back and we, we would reprint that particular picture. So generally, if, a, if, a, if there were a set of pictures that just couldn't be corrected, and a good example of that is a child was running and that picture would come out blurry, right? So if, if there was one that we couldn't correct, what I would do is I would take all those bad pictures put them at the front of the box. We used to have these boxes where we put the pictures inside of it and we'd open up the little lid and we'd show it to them. So I would put it at the front of the box, pull out the bad pictures and I'd say, hey, are these your pictures? And, be, and the first thing that someone would say, oh, Johnny, oh, it didn't come out right. Oh, man. Um, and so it was intentional because I wanted them to know that, hey, we didn't screw up on printing the picture. This was a bad picture, right? Otherwise they'd ask for credit back. So they'd go through and they're like, oh no. And then I would simply ask the question. I would say, um, hey, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately it can't be fixed. Like, so what kind of camera are you using? They'd say, oh, I'm using my point and shoot as an example. That's what we used to use, point and shoot. I don't know if you remember that, Richard. We have a, the, the point and shoot camera. Um, so, so they, I said, I think oh, okay. I still have one. I think I still have one in the drawer with all the cables I won't throw away. Funny, funny thing is my boys last week, they, they found my old point and shoot. They're like, oh, can I have this? And I'm, they're like, what is it? <laughs> Scott's wondering what it is too. He's too young. <laughs> so, so I would, uh, I would say, well, I, I would ask them and say, well, are you planning on taking more pictures like this? And they said, well, yeah, you know, my son is in golf or I'm not golf, um, soccer track, whatever it might be. Right. And I would say, okay, well, your, your camera's probably not going to work for those types of pictures. And they would say, oh no. And I was like, you probably need to get a different camera. Now, unbeknownst to me, I, I was not doing anything other than t helping them understand what they needed to be able to take the, uh, to get the results that they wanted. And so they would say, well, what kind of camera would that be? And I was like, well, the, 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 there's a couple options. There's the one that, you know, is probably pretty cheap, but if you really want to get these pictures come out right, you know, like the fast movement ones, you probably want one like this. And so I would show them and I would have the white lab coat on so they would know that I'm a photo finisher and I'm not a salesperson, right? And they would say, okay, well, which one is, you know, the better of the two? And I was like, well, definitely this one. Um, if I was, if I'm shooting pictures, I would go this route. And they would say, all right, well, how much is that? And I was like, you know, it's X price. And they're like, oh man, like I have to throw away everything I've got. I'm like, well, no, you, it's just different occasions for, you know, different equipment for different occasions. And I'm like, but if you want these types of memories, you're going to need this type of equipment. And so they'd say, okay, all right, I'll get that. And then what I would do is is we had a really awesome warranty and, and I used the warranty personally on my own equipment. It was a drop it, break it. If it was in pieces, they would replace it at no charge, right? So it was a really good warranty. And I would, uh, at the, right before I'd close out the, the register, I said, oh, by the way, you know, do you want the warranty? And almost everybody always says, no, I don't need the warranty, right? Oh, I don't need, I'm like, well, no problem. Look, I'm just a photo finisher, but I, I want you to know this is a really good warranty. And I personally have used it. I dropped my camera, I broke it. What are the odds of you potentially dropping and breaking your camera? And they're like, yeah, that's true, huh? I got like to pause box. you for a second. I got to pause you because um, I love the tactic, but I think the lab coat is the part that I love the best, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, I got to trust the guy in the lab coat. Do you still have the lab coat? Do you still wear it on your sales call so that you can say, look, I'm, I'm a technician. I am not a trainer. I am, you know. I'm a researcher. I'm a researcher. Yeah, he's going to, um, he's going to. He's going to wear it at his next uh, keynote. That, that, that would be actually a really good idea. Actually. That would but, be but, a good idea. But it really shows the power of those that are not in the sales position, like a, like a sales engineer or a product engineer or, you know, like, so, so as it, depending on the size of your company, 
if you had other people that are helping you with the sales process, it shows that the power of winning is with through a team, not as a soloist, right? They always say never lose uh, alone. Like if you're going to lose something, lose as a team. And so that, that's where the power of if you, the larger your team is, you got to use those resources because customers instantly start to build trust with those types of folks. Long but and short of my story, uh, I was just going to There are more cameras and more warranties than just about everybody else because of that. Because you, that's exactly right. you led with the photos that were screwed up or didn't come out perfectly. Therefore, the pain or the frustration they're experiencing is, is right at the forefront of your conversation. That's, that's incredible. And you I guys go back one more time, though. Mario, I think if I heard you correctly, you said you were in a movie. I was a what? In a movie? That- yeah, The Story of Sales by Salesforce. Okay, I didn't know that. I've never, I've never heard of that one. So was it, was it a movie movie or was it like, hey, we're interviewing a bunch of people and we're going to put it out kind of movie? So a uh, good question. It was, it's the first actual sales documentary produced in the world. And Salesforce was the producer of that movie. I think it was about an hour and a half, uh, hour, hour and 20 minute long movie. Um, and it's a documentary of, of how sales started and all the different sales thought leadership and, 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 and methodologies and bringing it all together. Salesforce produced it for the 2018 um, Dreamforce conference. And they uh-huh. had um, 20 sales influencers from around the globe. And I had the privilege of being selected as one of them to be part of the movie and uh, you know, bringing forth some thought leadership around, around selling. And I, that's where I then brought the quote forward that Hunter gave me after I told him this whole story. And he, and he says to me, he says, so really what you're doing is you're just helping a customer. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. That's, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just helping him. He's like, you're helping them see a pain that they otherwise didn't know that they had. And you're making sure that they see it before they walk out of the store. So it makes them think, oh my God, if I'm going to do pictures like this, then I need to have this. And so now the, the quote that I use uh, all the time is sales is simply the art of helping. Um, and that's really to your point, Richard, that you said as a salesperson, our job is to uncover the pain and the problem. And we need to be able to bring that to the forefront. And that's when you know, when you've got pain and problem, whether it's business or personal related, whatever the sales opportunity is, uh, you've got a potential sales opportunity. You can help them see the path to fixing that pain or problem. Yeah. I want, I want to dive into a different topic and that is the experience you had selling <clears throat> into big fortune 100 fortune 50 accounts. There, I mean, I don't know how many of our audience is are in those roles and selling in there now, but I know a large portion of the audience would love to get there. And, and there's not a whole lot of information out there about, you know, how to perform well in, in those kind of roles. It's not talked about all that often. It's a little bit of like a, a secret, you know, black box. And Richard and I have a really good friend who sells into that, uh, that market. But I, I would love, I'd love to hear your kind of tips and tricks. What would you be doing now if you were still selling into that market? And what might somebody do to hone their skills so they could get the chance to get into that kind of, of sales environment? Great question. Uh, so I spent a good portion of my career inside of uh, globals, uh, global accounts, uh, slaying big uh, 30 to $120 million contracts. Um, and it's a, it's a real thrill. It, it is an elephant hunt, that's for darn sure. Um, and, and 
to get there, you've got to earn your way through the ranks. So generally, uh, most folks start out in you know the SDR, BDR role, then they hit into the SMB, mid-market majors, nationals, globals. And that's how, how you're going to you know, get there. Um, and today, we still very much, some of our largest clients are folks, companies like Juniper Network, CenturyLink, uh, Zoom, video communication. Yeah. These are all global accounts for us that we still, we still sell. Mario, um, can, can I pause you for one second? Yeah. So you talk about earning your stripes and, and kind of that progression. How, what's a reasonable amount of time that somebody should expect to be able to pass through those different roles? Is, is, it, is it different in, at that level versus like the early stage startup level where people expect to be promoted like every three months? <laughs> right. I help people with their expectations here. I was just about to say, look, like when I went through it, it took me about 10, 10 or 12 years, I think it was, before I got to the global accounts. Uh, I, think, I think it was 12 years, if I'm not, maybe 10, 10 years. So, but now I think that um, potentially, depending on the product fit, but the company and product fit, if you've got a product that can fit into the global accounts, um, you're not going to get there within six months. And I think a lot of folks are coming into sales and they expect to be promoted every six to 12 months. Um, and First of all, my personal opinion is, is um, you may go from like an SDR to like a market development manager role or to a junior account executive role. You, there, there may be that pathway within a year. But once you're there at one of those roles where you're doing full sales cycle selling, you've got to be there at least minimum, minimum one year, more likely two, to be able to prove that you can sell and grow in that position and kill it, in my personal opinion. And that's coming from a very digital centric uh, you know, 45, oh, actually I'm, I'm 40, what am I, 44, 43? I'm 43 years old, 43 year old. Uh, so from that perspective, I would say it's going to take you at least to get into globals, at least seven years um, to be able to get something like that. And you got to earn your way there. What is, so talk about that. What does it mean to earn your way there aside from time, right? Like what are the, are success. the skills the same? You just need more practice. Yeah, success. Right? So, so, so the way I would look at this is, um, well, I'll give you my track record, right? And I'm not saying this to be like egotistical or show me, you know, like, ooh, look at me. But if you look at my track record in corporate, 18 of my, uh, of my corporate years, so, so five years on my own as of my own company and 18 spent in corporate, out of those 18 years, 15 of those 18 years were spent in the President's Club or 100% Club. So that demonstrates theoretically. Yeah, consistent. Either I was super lucky for 15 out of those 18 years Right, like I was in the right place at the right time. So what are those skills that you had to hone, right? In terms of, you know, relationship building. Right. Relationship but again, building. okay. So what does that mean for you? So the the key the, the key to unraveling a, a larger account is, um, you, first off, you need to quickly learn that there is no one single decision maker. Even back when I was selling to the likes of Wells Fargo and McKesson's. There was no one single decision maker. It was always then and now, it just seems to be more highlighted now, then and now a decision-making team and committee. And your job was to figure out how to get into each of those individual buying influencers and build a relationship with them such that they can build trust over the course of time and say, yes, I want to, I want to sign over a $50 million deal to you. Now back, now back then, was it a lot of flying around and having lunches and face-to-face -face meetings and that kind of thing? So I probably was on the road back then. If I go back to 2005, 10 years ago, if I go back 10 years ago, I probably was on the road 
four days out of the month. That's not too bad. So it's not, it's not, it wasn't bad. Maybe five, at most, five, right? So one week out of the, mo- out of the month. And I, I traveled a lot to the, the different corporate locations where I would be building relationships and, and having meetings with different executives. So what do you but do, it starts you're before doing that? Like what kind of things are you doing? Because I'm going to assume these sales cycles are nine to 12 months, if not longer, right? Um, how are you building your relationship other than, hey, let me take them to dinner? Like yeah. are, is, is the deal so big and, and is the value so complex that, well, you know, it actually does take 15 visits. And in this visit, we walk through this part and this visit, the next part, and then the next visit. And then, oh yeah, we do go to dinner and have cocktails and that kind of stuff. Like what is, what does that relationship building mean? It can, it can, it can be exactly as you just described, but let me take you a step back to a couple of questions you asked earlier. And that was, um, what are the skills that you have to develop to be able to get there? And it's no different whether it, you're working on a mid-market account or a majors account. The buying committee may be larger as you get bigger, as you get into bigger accounts. So on a mid-market account, as an example, you might have three key decision makers. The question is, is how are you navigating between decision maker one, two, and three? And how do you get decision maker number one to get you into decision maker number two's office and or to decision maker number three's office? And those are the skills that you need to demonstrate to get into some of those larger global accounts is that you can navigate through an organization, through all the buying decision makers, and you clearly have built relationships and you're hearing the problems and or concerns that they're addressing and you're individualizing the solution to each of those particular person's concerns. Whether you do that on a major account with three, buy, three decision makers and you prove that you can, you can navigate through a buying committee, once you've done that, now you can do that on a scale of five, 10, 20 uh, decision makers, whatever the number might be. And so that's really the key is, is if you're in a mid-market space or you're in a um, um, commercial accounts organization, I promise you there's more than one decision maker. Does the, does the need for the strength of those relationships <clears throat> to, to be just like tighter and tighter increase when you get into this F50, meaning like, I think people know in a regular AE software sales environment, mid-market, let's say, okay, I need to build a relationship with Mario and with, and with Richard in order to close the deal. Can I get away with like a 70% strength score on my relationship factor to close that mid-market deal, but I need a 95 or higher to close a, a, a global account or is the strength of the relationship the same? You just maybe need more of those relationships in the larger account. I think the answer to that is it depends. I've been on, I've been, I've worked with buying committees before where there was a team of 12 people that were influencing a buying decision. And there was one person who was not the key decision maker could absolutely have the strongest voice of the 12. And that voice could sway other people on that decision-making team. So uh, the answer is, is yes, it could happen the way you just described it, Scott, but also it could go a different way. And that's why it's our job to understand each individual involved in the buying process. What are the individual pains? What are they trying to get out of this? What's the personal win? What are they looking for? And we only do that through individualized relationship building 
that we might do, and most of my work that I did was through virtual anyways, which is what was interesting, unique when I worked in the Globals accounts, because most folks in Globals are traveling all over the world and globe, and they're having meetings face-to-face, -face, golfing, dinners, those types of things. Whereas I flip-flopped that, and I allowed myself to, to virtualize these types of meetings and build those relationships um, and understand how to be able to work with these folks and understand those individual pains. However, I will say this, that the senior most executive, which was in this case, we were selling to IT. It was the global CIO, in, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in, the, in one example I'm thinking of, which was McKesson Corporation, was one of my um, uh, target accounts. McKesson Corporation was a Fortune then 16 company and the global CIO was a direct report to John Hammergren, the then CEO of McKesson Corporation, which was a $120 billion company. And that decision maker could absolutely sway uh, a decision one way or the other. Um, in fact, there's a great story. I lost a $36 million deal. Oof. And I got the phone call from the CPO, Chief Procurement Officer, who basically said, well, thanks, no thanks. You're being thrown out. You lost this deal. And we're moving forward with um, another uh, one of your competitors. And it was, was it a pricing issue, do you think? It was, it was a pricing issue. Yeah, he wanted us to come down. We were 20% higher and we, were, and we weren't budging. And that was a decision that my leadership team allowed me as the global account executive to make to not come down closer to the price point. And it was because what I knew, what we did on the back end that nobody else would be able to do and the relationship that I had that I said, no. Now, I didn't expect us to lose that deal. However, I had a contingency plan. And that's where a, a skilled global accounts seller knows exactly if I'm going to pull this lever or play this card, I've got the next ace ready to go up my sleeve, right? And so when I got that phone call, it was like the pit in my stomach. It was like the worst call you can get. And yep. the next call was I, I called my EVP and said, we lost the deal. And he said, what? I can't believe, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, hold on. I'm going to try to win it back. Right now, right now, there's AEs and VPs of sales listening who have that reaction over a $3,600 deal, let alone no doubt. a million dollar deal. No, no doubt. And, this well, is and most of those people would be like, just cut the price, Mario. <laughs> just cut the price. That's exactly that's right. So, so what, what ended up happening was, is I, I called the CIO on his, um, his, uh, his uh, mobile phone. Now, what nobody knew, what nobody knew was that the global CIO that I would had a relationship with, that he and I became friends outside of work. All right. Uh, we went to the Madonna concert together, his wife and my wife. We did dinners together. He came to my wedding. Of course, he didn't tell anybody but his global admin, right? So we became friends and building a relationship. And that happened as a result of me being on the account. And I just became human, right? I just became human to him. And, and so I placed a phone call to him. And I said, uh, uh, I said global CIO, uh, <clears throat> it appears that your CPO made a decision uh, and uh, we lost the deal. And he said, yeah, I heard. And so I said, um, uh, there's two questions that you need, to, you need to ask him. And he said, okay. And I said, and I can promise you he doesn't know the answer to either of these two questions. And this was my trump card. I knew that what we had built on the back end in terms of an infrastructure integration, that the other providers were not going to build. 
And what the pain was is that they had, uh, in this case, it was about 70,000 employees that were ordering from their, from their, from their um, sourcing site uh, these solutions that we had. Um, and in order for the other company to come in, they would have to have spent about $15 million to do the backend integration. We had already done that. It was a sunk cost. We weren't going down on price. Now, I asked him, I said, here are the two questions that you need to ask him. Number one, when you sign the contract with the new provider, will you guarantee to me that on day one, all of our employees will be able to order? That was number one. And number two, how much is the cost for the integration? So here's what the CIO did. He said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to help you out. I'm not going to sway this deal. I'm not going to do that, but I'll help you out. I will ask that question for you. I said, that's all I want you to do. So he said, um, tomorrow when I, I'll walk, into the, I'll walk past his office. He just as he tell me, he said, tomorrow I'll walk past his office. I'll just pop my head in and I'll ask him those two questions. And then if you're right, then we'll probably be back in discussion. If you're wrong, nothing I can do about it. I said, deal. So that's what he did. He called me up later on. He said, I walked past um, uh, the CPO's office, stuck my head in. I said, hey, congratulations on the decision. I heard you're, you're um, uh, uh, throwing Mario and the team out. He's like, yeah, you know, unfortunately they wouldn't come down on price. You know, they wouldn't want to play the game. He goes, yeah, well, sounds like it was a good decision. So he says he walked past the office and goes, you know, two or three doors down and on purpose. And then he said, I walked back to his office, stuck my head and said, hey, real quick, by the way, um, I got two questions for you. And he asked those two questions. And the CPO said, those are good questions. Let me get back to you. And the reason why he said, let me get back to you, because he didn't have an answer to those two questions. So we basically were sitting there for about six weeks with no information coming back at all. Six weeks. And it was the hardest six weeks that you would ever think of as a relationship seller, as a global account executive. And you're just like, dear God, please tell me we're going to win this deal. Like, do not let me screw this up. I hope this car is working. So I get a phone call about six and a half weeks later from the global CIO. And he said, all I can say is, is you clearly know your stuff. You'll get a phone call. And I said, thank you. That was it. The next wow. day, I got a phone call from the CPO. CPO comes back to me and says, listen, uh, I want to make a deal with you guys. I said, okay, great. You know, yeah. Well, what, what do you, you need to come down by 10% and that'll be enough for us to be able to uh, make our decision and go and, 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 and award you this deal. And I said, 10%. And I said, I'm sorry. And I knew this call was coming. And so I said, I'm sorry. You rehearsed it for six weeks. I'm sorry. Uh, here's the problem. You remember the pricing that we gave you? Yeah. Remember I told you that it needed to be signed six weeks ago because you were getting the brand new um, uh, um, version before it got hit the streets? Yeah. I told you we were, it was going to hit the streets. And as a direct result, it's been so popular, we've increased the price. So I'll tell you what. You sign this deal in the next two weeks, and I'll, I'll, I'll honor the price that we gave you at the $36 million deal. But if you can't, at this point, it's hit the market, it's become extremely popular, and I'll have to increase the price. And so what I knew was, is that the cost, the differential, that 20%, it was less than the $15 million it was going to take to, to produce that um, integration with the other provider. Yeah. 
So therefore, I didn't need to come down on my price. And that was because of working, you know, just all the information and the data points. And so we ended up winning that deal. We signed a $36 million deal with them um, and that we did not increase the price. But everything I said was absolutely true and absolutely accurate. So that's a story just, just like, you know, relationship selling at its best, where you knew each of the players and you individualized the selling process to each one based upon what you knew. That was beautiful. I don't think I've heard a more articulated way to explain it. And it, it is no different than anything else. You just, there's a lot more nuance and you just have to be more calm and patient. And I think at least, you know, for Scott and I, we, we work in the startup world so much that it's all about a land grab, right? It's all about the logo. Um, you know, and I think as the, as the companies like, you know, Gong and Salesloft and Outreach and Vidyard and, um, you know, the, 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 the larger startups are pivoting, this is the piece they've got to learn, right? Like this, this, is where they, this is where they struggle, is, is right. you know, <clears throat> these, these reps doing everything they can. But, to it's, get, but it's, I also think it's a lack of experience. I don't think they struggle yeah. because they don't want to. Yeah, well, the battle is, is, is as big externally as it is internally. And uh, I, I tell you, one of my favorite global account story is a deal we had Chevron Chevron was a deal that we had lost eight years earlier. Now, I was not involved in that process that the company had lost that deal. It was about a $50 million contract that we had lost. And we lost it. We did zero. Our, the, the global CIO threw out our CEO of, the, of a then Fortune 100 company and said, thanks, but no thanks. Literally, it was a 10-minute long meeting. It was supposed to be a 30-minute. In 10 minutes, he threw him out and said, you're out. You're out. And that deal... Um, we lost it not because of the salesmanship. We lost it Actually, we lost it and we ended up winning it. I'll tell you what we ended up doing. We lost it because the senior leadership team made a bad decision. And I knew that they made a bad decision and I put my career on the line for that deal. Wait, you mean senior leadership sometimes gets in the way of salespeople doing their job? And they think that they know better on how to sell indirectly in, in those accounts. Yeah, and, it, this was, and, and by the way, this was someone who had had a, had a reputation of winning big, giant, massive deals, right? Um, inside of my organization. And it, would, it pissed me off to no end. But I will tell you that we ended up winning that deal. And that was somewhere between a 40 and $50 million deal. I don't remember the exact amount. We ended up winning it, but I, I almost killed my entire career off that deal. And that is a story. That story, I tell you, 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 you yeah, I don't know if we have enough time, but I, I can take you through that story. But that is a story of not selling externally. It's learning how to sell internally and watching the landmines before you step them, step on them and knowingly, knowingly putting on your battle armor suit and stepping on one of those landmines to watch something explode to get to where you need to get. Can to. you can we do it in like four minutes? Can you give us some highlights of that in a second? All right. Here we go. Before you do that, though, because we're, we're going to have to quickly wrap up after that. But I, I want to also, you know, this is the best way to drop, you know, our sponsors, uh, Perception Predict, Gong, Vidyard, Lead411, and find them. Please check out those folks. They are massively helpful and relevant to everything we're talking about, um, whether it's hiring, whether it's um, selling internally or externally, um, and learning how to sell and learning how to find those right people. So anyway, give us the highlight of the three biggest, two biggest things you had to do to sell internally in your org on this deal. Love me my gong, by the way. Love me my gong. Um, <clears throat> so, um, all right, so here we go. Um, we needed to come down on price. Now this was truly a pricing play. 
And the leadership team felt like we didn't need to come down on price. And I, I just could not believe myself why somebody would think that after all the efforts that this, my, my team had done, they would not listen to what we needed to do. And we had an internal champion inside there who said, listen, I'll help you get this back, but, but you got to be able to get to this price. So um, what happens was, or what happened, what happened then was oftentimes you start escalating things up the flagpole and all of a sudden people start working in these small little vacuums. John gets with Susie and they get into a room and they talk about a deal and they come up with a decision. They push it back down to the VP and the VP down to the director and the director down to the manager. And you're like, what? That's not what I asked for. Right. And, and it's totally something different. And inevitably it always happens that way, which is why every single special pricing discussion, I include the rep in every meeting, in every meeting with whatever, the, if it's the president or CEO, the rep is involved because they know the information that we don't know. So what happened was, is, is that was one of the cases. And so we took the pricing request up and they denied the request. And they said, here's the price. This is what the market's paying. Um, and I pushed and pushed and pushed. They wouldn't, they wouldn't budge um, to the point that I was told, drop it. So here's what I did. In two weeks, I knew that we were going to be at our sales, uh, sales leadership retreat. And it happened to be that the CSO was one of my former mentors of the company. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, listen, man, um, you know, at the, at the, at the uh, leadership retreat, he said, don't tell me. And I said, wait, what? He said, I already know what you're going to do. Don't tell me. And he said, I need to be, yeah. whatever you're going to do, I would, I would do the exact same thing. He said, I would do the exact same thing, but do not tell me because that plausible deniability. And I yeah. said, you got it. So we meet. And uh, I see his name is Paget, by the way, great guy. I see Paget, and I say, "Hey, how's it going, buddy?" We have small talk and all that good stuff. And I said, "Man, it's really too bad that uh, we're going to lose the uh, the Chevron deal." And he goes, "Chevron deal? What are you talking about?" I said, "What do you mean? What am I talking about? What are you talking about?" I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait! You don't know about it?" He said, "No." I said, "Well, my SVP said he got your approval." on the pricing that came back down the field. He said, what? I said, wait, you don't know about this? He goes, I don't know anything about this deal. I said, that's so strange because when I asked the VP of finance, he told me to back off and he had already gotten your approval on this. He said, tell me about the deal. So I told him about the deal. And he goes, you mean to tell me that we won't come down another 15 more? He goes, what's the price point? I told him the price point. He goes, that's within margins. That's within reason. I said, that's exactly what I said. Our ROIC, our EBITDA, everything is, all, 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 the, all the financial calculations come out at the minimum, at the minimum. He goes, I was there when we lost that deal. When the CIO walked out, our then CEO, I was there waiting outside and, and I saw what happened. That was a huge $50 million. He goes, come with me. So here we are at the leadership dinner. And we're having cocktails. He walks over to the table where the VP of finance was. He taps on the shoulder of the VP of finance and he says, hey, Johnny, Mario tells me that we're going to lose this deal with Chevron. And I swear to you, if you could see daggers flying out of someone's eyeballs. Oh, I believe it. That's it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, that was my, my, my food interruption by my children. Sorry. He said, um, close the door, son. Uh, he said, if you could see daggers coming out of someone's eyeballs, those daggers just went pierced right through my heart. And he looked at me and he said, he said to Paget, he goes, well, 
the, the, the deal is, you know, really at the, at the threshold. He said, Mario says the price is this. And he goes, well, that's true. He goes, that's at the minimum, isn't it? And he goes, he looks back at me and you could just see it, just blood boiling. And so uh, anyways, so he says, I'll tell you what, we're obviously not going to figure it out here. I want the financials of this deal on my desk Monday morning when we get back in the office. That was a Friday after, it was a Friday evening. And so he says, Mario, we're going to get this deal. Can you close it? And I said, you darn right we can if we get the price. And so he said, we'll get, we'll, we'll get this working out. Get this on my desk. All right. I walked away and I said, yes. And then I said, oh God, the next person that's going to come up to me is going to be my VP who's going to rip me a new one. Yeah. Within, he wanted plausible deniability. Within, with, well, well, this was the boss in, this was the, the boss yeah. in between, right? The one layer above. So within five minutes, the executive assistant for my VP comes over and says, Mario, uh, you know, so-and-so would like to meet with you. And I said, oh, when, right now? And she said, right now. <laughs> and I said, okay. So we go back in the back room. He unleashed. He was screaming at me at the top of his lungs. And I just let him go at it. And he was like, don't you ever go around me, blah, 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 blah. And so I let him go at it. And I said to him these words. I said, the reality is, is you and so-and-so did not listen to what I said would win this deal. I know exactly what would win this deal. And we have worked for two years. I promise you this, that when we win this 45 million, oh, it's a $45 million contract. When we win this $45 million contract, you will not be this upset. And then I said, are we done here? And so that was it. That's awesome. Three months later, we won a $45 million contract. That's awesome. Uh, and so that's how we did it. Now, that was a landmine from a career perspective yeah. that could absolutely have cost me my role, my job, and everything. Good thing, good thing you actually closed it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You did think you actually closed it. But here's the thing. The point of the relationship selling component is, unfortunately, even our own executives get in the way. And we need to listen to the field. And with every, every question that you ask the field, why would we do this? What are the competition at? What is our buyer saying? You got, got to go through all the questioning. If your sales team can nail it on all cylinders and they've pulled out every stop that, they, that would block this deal from, 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 from going through, and it's just this, and it's within the financial um, um, area of, of profitability, you listen to the sales team. Yeah. And that was the lesson that the leadership team learned was they were wrong. And I was happy to tell them that they were wrong, but you needed to be really careful about where you put, where you stepped at on those landmines. This is awesome. This has been some great storytelling, Mario, and uh, lots of gold nuggets. What can we do to help you? Is there anything that... Uh, any questions you want to ask us, anything you're working on that you want to kind of spend a second shouting out real quick before we jump? I'll give you guys a shout out. We just released a brand new uh, sales productivity and messaging tool for the, uh, for the uh, sales field. And I'm super excited, excited about this. It's called Fly Message, spelt like MSG. So flymessage.io. In fact, if you type in message the word or flymsg.io, you're going to get to the same spot. Um, it's about to launch. Um, so by the time this podcast publishes, we would have launched it, I think, within the next 48 hours. Um, so it's, uh, it's out there. It's soft launch. Download it. It's actually a phenomenal tool that allows you as a seller to be able to, well, think of it this way, Scott and Richard. How many times have you sent a, a, a message or copied and pasted a message that you usually use 
in prospecting or engagement with whoever it might be. Do you have any templates that you copy and paste and store in Google Docs or OneNote or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sure. We've solved that problem from a sales productivity perspective. Download it, uh, apply your fly cut, and with just a few keystrokes, you can expand out a bunch of text. And so what the way sellers are using it today is we've got a bunch of, of uh, templates that we have inside there in our free version. And then in our premium version, which will be launched in the next few months, we'll have all of our 60 plus templates that we use inside of our digital sales training course. Um, but more importantly, you can build everything that you want and have it in one central spot and use it on any web-based application, Salesforce, HubSpot, LinkedIn as well. And it'll allow you to be able to connect and engage with your buyers quicker, faster, better, just with a few short T-strokes. FlyMSG.io. Congrats on, uh, on, on, on the release of that. It's probably Thanks, been, probably been a, a, a little while in the making, man. Good job. I think we could just, when we go on vacation, Scott, we could just you know, have Mario come on. We could leave him like four questions. He could read the question out and then he could just record an episode for us, right? Yes. And with great storytelling, by the way. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Been awesome. <laughs> thanks so much, Mario. Hey, thanks, thanks for having Mario. me, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye, bud.